0: Welcome to the What We Lost podcast. Michelle Douglas had resigned as chair of We Charities Board of Directors in March 2020, a month before the organization was recruited to help deliver the CSSG. She had no knowledge of the program or the details of how it came to be. But her untimely resignation and public statements made her a star witness for partisan politicians like Charlie Angus and Pierre Polyev, who were not really interested in hearing the truth. I'm Martin Luther King III, and this is the What We Lost podcast. This is the true story behind Michelle Douglas's resignation and the board's oversight of the charity. A Question of Governance Of all the charges hurled at We Charity in the wake of the CSSG, the most disconcerting to me was the accusation that there was a governance problem at the organization and that the Kilburgers and the executive team functioned without appropriate oversight. This was the number one concern people raised with me, both as a board member and in interviews for this book. And it's rooted almost entirely in testimony and public statements from Michelle Douglas, the former chair of the charity's Canadian Board of Directors. Everyone understands that politicians spin the facts. And people also get why the media is invested in headlines and can't always be trusted to deliver the complete story. But the former board chair taking shots at the charity and its management, that understandably raised plenty of eyebrows, even among ardent supporters of the charity. Her concerns allowed pundits and opposition politicians to falsely characterize the charity as being in disarray with a broken governance process and a board in shambles at the time the CSSG was awarded. And these characterizations fueled public misperceptions that have never been addressed until now. I suspect that people at We Charity, the Killbergers, and Michelle will all be dissatisfied with the version of events I'm about to offer and will feel it is unfair to them or incomplete in some way but my goal is to take you inside the rooms where it happened and tell you the story to the best of my ability, including what Michelle really said, and perhaps more importantly, what she never said. When she appeared by video conference before the FINA committee on July 28, 2020, Michelle opened the session by offering some introductory remarks about her personal story and her 15 years at We Charity. She mentioned her military service and her decades-long career as a public servant, and she noted her laudable history of human rights activism, telling committee members that she viewed volunteerism in service to others as one of the central pillars of her life. She also talked about how she came to join the board of what was then still Free the Children, and spent many years excited by the prospect of working with an organization that inspired young people to contribute to a more just, hopeful, and loving world. But the most important line in her opening statement was this, having resigned on March 27, 2020, I have no knowledge whatsoever of the Canada Student Service Grant Program. I cannot overemphasize the significance of this statement. If the committee members were looking for answers about the CSSG, they've called the wrong witness. The person testifying should have been Greg Rogers, the chair of the WE Charity Canadian Board, when the CSSG contribution agreement was negotiated and signed. Douglas had left WE Charity weeks before Rachel Warnick, even made that first call to Craig Kilberger, and she certainly had no knowledge of the organization's interactions with the government or the process by which the charity was awarded the contract. In other words, the witness had nothing to offer, and her testimony really should have ended there. But it didn't end there, because she had advertised that she had a story to tell, and opposition politicians were hungry to hear it. Noses in, fingers out. Michelle and I were friends and colleagues on the board of We Charity. In fact, even though she declined to speak with me for this book, I still think of her as a friend to this day. I also admire her as a true Canadian hero, a highly regarded Air Force lieutenant who graduated at the top of her class, She was promoted to the military's Elite Special Investigation Unit, SIU, after about two years of service. Ironically, one of the unit's chief tasks was to investigate suspected gay and lesbian service members, and Michelle herself was gay. Just weeks after she joined the SIU, her secret got out and she was discharged for being not advantageously employable due to homosexuality. It was 1989, and the LGBT purge, as it had come to be known, was in its fourth decade, having survived long after homosexual activity was removed from the criminal code. After she was discharged... Michelle attended a lecture by Sven Robinson, an NDP MP and the first openly gay member of Parliament. When the talk was over, she introduced herself to him and told him her story. Robinson asked if she would consider being the face of an anti-discrimination lawsuit against the military. She agreed on October 27, 1992, The day the trial was set to begin, the military settled the case out of court at the direction of then Attorney General Kim Campbell. This is not simply for me, Michelle said at the time. It's for people who are still in the Canadian Armed Forces and for those who never had the chance to take this to court. There's no question there are still people being harmed by this policy. And for them, it is critically important that we get it changed and now. In time, Michelle went on to become Director of International Relations for the Department of Justice. Working closely with former Attorney General Jody Wilson-Raybould, and today she is Executive Director of the LGBT Purge Fund, a nonprofit set up to manage funds recovered through the settlement of a nationwide class action suit against the Canadian government by survivors of the LGBT purge. Just six months before she stepped down from the board of WE Charity, Michelle wrote of her admiration for the leadership team and the co-founders and of her great trust in their decision-making process, integrity, and transparency. And she frequently praised the performance of the charity's executive director, Dalal wahidi and her predecessor, Scott Baker. So I believe that despite media narratives to the contrary, she did not think the governance of We Charity was lacking. For almost a decade, she was the person most responsible for governance matters. And if she had seen anything that concerned her, I feel confident she wouldn't have hesitated to say so. She even touted the board's commitment to excellent governance in an October 2019 letter shared with media outlets noting that the board is made up of highly engaged experts whose cumulative experience allows them to offer informed and responsible guidance and oversight to the charity, ensuring the highest levels of integrity in its work. As a board member, though with nowhere near Michelle's experience and tenure, I had no concerns about governance. But I now realize that so much of We Charity's hands-on, roll-up-your-sleeves culture, the very thing that made us feel so good about the organization, encouraged a governance philosophy that, at times, mixed oversight with active involvement in day-to-day affairs. We theoretically observed the governance principle of nose-in, fingers-out, meaning the board provided oversight but was not charged with operational duties, but in practice, it was often all hands on deck. This was by design. The charity, and particularly the Kilburgers long ago eschewed the idea of a board full of celebrities and luminaries who did no real work in favor of one whose members could provide sober-minded advice and jump into the fray when needed. At the time, it seemed wise, but in hindsight, it was a recipe for problems. When I joined the board in 2017, Michelle was one of my go-to sources of information and helped show me the ropes. This was particularly true with respect to issues that called for caution and scrutiny. For example, when I had questions about We Charity's real estate acquisitions, most of which had occurred before I joined the board, she was able to explain why these purchases benefited the charity and supported its mission. And when it came to the relationship between We Charity and Me to We, Michelle understood better than most the symbiosis between the charity and the social enterprise, the legal reasons for keeping Me to We as a distinct legal entity, and the nature and level of support that the social enterprise provided to the charity. We were an involved board of directors. Michelle, most of all, she had been volunteering with WE Charity for 15 years, and was deeply embedded in the organization. In addition to her traditional board responsibilities, which included liaising with management and other board members, attending board meetings, reviewing the financials and annual budgets, signing the audits, and offering remarks in the opening pages of the annual reports, she was immersed in the charity's actual operations. She represented WE at countless events, crafted letters in support of the Kilburgers and other senior executives, and participated in multiple trips to international projects. She was one of WE's most enthusiastic supporters and an effective and impassioned ambassador for its mission. The charity was also a family affair. Michelle's sister was employed by the organization as a fundraiser, trip host, and relationship manager, and her nephew had been hired as an overseas trip facilitator for me to we Like Craig, he had become interested in humanitarian issues at a young age, raising a considerable amount of money for schools in Kenya when he was still a child. In advance of every board meeting, and on a regular basis in between, Michelle, along with Doc the Jonathan White, then U.S. board chair, spent a great deal of time asking tough questions and getting answers from We Charity's executives. They explained to me that they viewed their job as pushing back behind the scenes and then presenting distilled information to the board. Delal told me, that in advance of each board meeting, Michelle reviewed all pertinent documents, gave detailed feedback, and helped craft the agenda. DeLal's predecessor, Scott, said much the same. We had great discussions in preparation for meetings and walked through any potential sensitive issues, he explained. Michelle was very engaged in these meetings. She was very much a governance and process-focused person. Other board members also took on specialized roles. Educational leaders like Jerry Connolly, former director of education of the Toronto District School Board and now co-chair of We Charity Foundation, and Mary Eileen Donovan, a former superintendent with the Toronto Catholic District School Board, would go into the office regularly, host training sessions, and get involved in curriculum design. Jonathan White, a US-based professor, and Terry Mazzani, former president and CEO of the Chicago Community Trust, spent hundreds of hours mentoring staff on strategy to expand the organization into the US. Once I joined the board, I was often involved in looking at legal questions and engaged directly with internal and external counsel as needed. The one standing committee that was always on call was the Finance Committee, which oversaw finance and audit issues and risk mitigation. It consisted primarily of board members Chris Bess and Kanan Arsarathenem. Kanan is We Charity's current U.S. board chair. Although the organization had legally separate Canadian and U.S. boards, the practice for over a decade was for both boards to meet and work together as much as possible to better coordinate the respective Canadian and U.S. operations. Chris and Kanan did a deep dive into the financials with the help of We Charity staff, including the CFO, and then walked the other directors through the figures to confirm that everything was in order. Kanan has served on the charity's Board without interruption since 2011. He's a numbers guy, a CPA who worked at Deloitte and BlackRock, and earned his MBA at the Kellogg School of Management and the Schulich School of Business. He advises private equity and corporate clients on accounting, finance, and corporate strategy matters. He is also humble, calm, and skeptical. He reviewed the details of We Charity's financial position each year with a jeweler's eye. Chris Bess also boasts deep experience. He spent 20 years in educational publishing, including as CEO of Gauge Learning and Managing Director at Nelson Education, then shifted into Education Technology as CEO of FreshGrade. He is currently partner and chief commercial officer at Edsby, a student engagement and learning management platform. He also completed the advanced management program at Harvard Business School. In general, there were few limits on what task board members would undertake to help WE Charity. They traveled to WE Days in various cities to meet young people and donors. Almost every board member Visited We Village's projects around the world. And when serious issues relating to personnel arose in Kenya in 2018, a story I'll come back to later, Michelle and fellow board member Eric Morrison, former CEO of the Canadian Press, personally flew to the country to sift through the papers and get to the bottom of things. I think I speak for all board members when I say it was deeply satisfying for us to use our professional training to contribute directly to the charity's operations. These direct contributions seemed more tangible and impactful than simply reviewing reports and attending meetings, although, of course, we did those things as well. With the benefit of hindsight, I now realize that the fulfillment we got from our hands-on involvement may have given us the sense that we would and should have say in areas that are traditionally reserved for management. We did not draw sharp lines between governing and managing, and that would soon have significant repercussions. A Dramatic Departure as the pandemic loomed, We Charities management team tried to come to terms with its likely impacts on the organization. Things were changing day by day, and Dalal was responsible for keeping Michelle abreast of developments. Between March 2nd and March 27th, she or the co-founders participated in at least 10 meetings or calls with Michelle and other board members. On a call with Michelle and the WE Charity executive team on March 16th, Mark and Dalal first raised the need to lay off many people who would no longer have work to do. The layoffs would be in the hundreds, they said. Although every department would likely be affected to some degree, the impact would be heaviest on the WE Day and Me to We Trips teams. With this sobering news in hand, Michelle sent an email to the other board members summoning us to an emergency meeting that evening. It said, in part, that the impacts of the pandemic were serious and substantial and that several difficult and challenging decisions had to be made. But she closed on an upbeat note, writing, The values and driving principles of we remain strong. We all need to come together in this extraordinary time. At the board meeting, we discussed the gravity of the global situation. Craig and Mark presented the dire reports they'd received from experts like epidemiologist David Fisman, Jeff Skull, hedge fund manager Chris Henson, and KPMG global chair Bill Thomas. The plan for significant layoffs triggered mixed feelings. Some directors thought it was the responsible thing to do to ensure the organization's long-term sustainability. I was among them. On a moral level, these members felt that the funding for pandemic relief in vulnerable regions took precedence over continuing to pay salaries for staff and programs that would not be operational for at least two years. Others, however, balked at the speed with which decisions were being made. As a next step, Michelle convened a subcommittee with White, Morrison, and Bess to engage with management on this sensitive issue. When I interviewed Delal more than a year later, she maintained that the organization's approach was the right one. I used to run We Days, and I believed in their impact, she said. But we were told by medical experts that it would be years before schools allowed kids to fill stadiums on school trips. It just did not make sense to keep going as if nothing had changed. The math did not add up, and it was not fiscally responsible in terms of having a large amount of payroll for programs that would not receive future funding and that we would not be able to implement due to COVID restrictions. Kanan, who was deeply immersed in the financial affairs of the charity, felt the same way. I think we charity management made the case for why the layoffs were necessary, he said in an interview. Given what was happening in the world at that stage, they weren't the only organization having to go through some type of layoff or furlough. The reality is the situation was changing daily and they needed the leeway to be reactive. He felt he got what was needed in terms of the financials. I think it was a very dramatic picture that they painted for us and that they were doing their best to preserve the charity. The organization's culture, that is, personal relationships built over years and the sense of belonging to one big family made the thought of layoffs more difficult. But as board members, we had an obligation to act in the best interest of the organization. We couldn't simply choose the path that would have been easier for us on a personal level as volunteers who cared deeply about friends and colleagues whose jobs were at stake. We had to think about how best to protect and sustain the organization. Two days after the board meeting on March 18th, Michelle asked management for a list of names of those who had been and were likely to be laid off. She also asked for access to the financial data the management team was relying on to make these choices. No one takes lightly the decision to terminate hundreds of employees, so I understand where she was coming from. But in the opinion of management and the co-founders, Her requests went beyond the board's governance purview. To my knowledge, they never refused to provide the information altogether. They just wanted to provide briefings in lieu of the actual names of employees and copies of real-time financial projections that were changing by the minute. And they provided those briefings to Douglas and other subcommittee members on a near-daily basis. This goes back to the things I just said about the tension between governance and management. I believe that an organization of We Charity size needed a board focused on oversight, policy, strategy, compliance, and overall direction. In other words, a governance board. It was the executive director's responsibility to manage the charity, although, of course, she had to be held accountable by the board. As directors, we needed to be satisfied that management's business case for downsizing was sound, and in my view, that was the case given the gravity of COVID. Asking to review names on a layoff list was an example of micromanaging, and governance experts I spoke to said this is not an appropriate board function. Kanan and I have spent much time reflecting on the fast-moving events of March 2020 and what could fairly have been expected from management. We are there to provide strategic advice, strategic decision-making, he told me, but we're not the operators. I don't think it was the board's position to say, hey, listen, you need to lay off that person or this person and get into the nitty-gritty of who the individuals are. That's management's decision. There are some board members who sadly wanted to get into the details. They felt it was their right to get into the weeds. There may have been personal bias and personal stuff coming into play. One such personal factor was that Michelle's sister was among those on the chopping block. Now, I have no idea if anything Michelle said or did was animated by concerns over her sister's job or the jobs of countless other people she knew and cared about. I never got to ask her, but I suspect she would say, the suggestion is nonsense. And it may be. There's no doubt, however, that it created a real conflict of interest. Nobody, chair, director, officer, or manager, should be involved in a decision that could affect a family member's job. Delal, Mark, and Craig, for their part, told me that they were concerned about providing her with that list of employee names. And Chris Bess, who was a member of the four-person subcommittee, told me in an interview for this book that he would have asked Michelle to recuse herself had he known at the time that her sister was among those slated to be let go, and that this was creating apprehension on the part of management. But it went unspoken. None of this was presented by We Management or Michelle to me or, to my knowledge, other board members, and her sister's termination did not come up in Michelle's testimony before FINA or in media coverage of her testimony and public statements. To make matters worse, these were the stressful early days of the pandemic when confusion reigned and people were afraid of what was to come. The team at We Charity was no exception. Tempers were frayed and emotions raw. Michelle continued to question whether overseas travel and We Days would truly be shut down long-term and whether the resulting loss of revenue really required such significant layoffs. Delau and Mark, who felt they had solid information, that the pandemic's consequences would be significant and lasting became impatient with these questions and stressed that with each passing day, surplus salaries took away precious resources that could be better directed to a humanitarian pandemic response. In the middle of all this, we was also trying to repatriate staff and trip participants and source medical shipments for global partners. Based on communications I've reviewed and interviews I've conducted with other board members, I know that Michelle was equally frustrated with refusals to address what she viewed as non-disruptive requests that would allow for real-time oversight of a decision to lay off a large number of people. I imagine she was thinking, look, if you're going to let hundreds of staff go based on a projected sharp decline in revenues, provide those projections so they can be reviewed and tested. And at least some subcommittee members felt that her demands were reasonable. For Michelle, it was not a question of trust in management. It was a question of governance. To her mind, legitimate concerns were being brushed aside. The issue came to a boil on March 23rd, on a phone call the subcommittee members had with Mark and DeLau. Michelle once again demanded that management provide a list of staff to be terminated and written financial justifications for the layoffs, and this time she gave a firm deadline of the next day. Mark said the deadline wasn't feasible with everything else management was trying to deal with. Terse words were exchanged. Eventually, Mark uncharacteristically hung up. Months later, during her FINA testimony, this is how Michelle described those events. I would say there was one particularly dramatic or memorable meeting on or about March 23rd when I had asked for the ad hoc committee to be convened. I, the U.S. board chair, and two others attended that meeting by phone. I demanded that the executive team produce those records. I gave a short turnaround time. I think later that day or early the next morning. I simply say that the call was abruptly concluded. Two days later, Craig called Michelle to try to cool the dispute and to stress the need to move forward with downsizing. He told her that while specific dollar figures might vary, The big picture would not. The organization would need to pour millions into its pandemic response around the world and would simply not be able to carry hundreds of staff who would have no real work to do. According to Craig, the conversation bounced back and forth. He asked Michelle to allow the layoffs to proceed and noted that the entire management team felt they were absolutely a necessity. She would not acquiesce unless the executive team met her request in full. Craig said it was a management decision, not a board decision. She disagreed. It was an impasse. It was, I am sure, painful for all. Michelle thought of both Craig and Mark as close friends, and she had often talked of Craig especially as a personal inspiration She once said that his example had pushed her to make a more meaningful difference in her own activism, and she described Mark as an incredibly kind and loyal leader. For his part, Craig had been mentored by Michelle and was immensely grateful that she had dedicated so much of her life to the charity he co-founded as a teenager, but now that bond was strained. According to Craig, he told her that if they could not see eye to eye on this issue, and more broadly, on the line between governance and management, then maybe after 15 years, Tenevos as chair, she had grown too close to the operation to deliver objective governance. He suggested that she consider leaving in August 2020, when other directors would also be stepping off the board as part of a pre-arranged transition. This was not the original plan. Michelle was supposed to exit the board in August 2021. She was offended and hurt. As she later told the FINA committee, it was clear that there was a breakdown in trust between the founders and me as the board chair, as I was not going to be able to discharge my oversight duties I opted to resign immediately. She called an emergency board meeting for the evening of March 27th. Craig phoned me shortly before it started. I don't want you to be surprised, but Michelle is going to resign. It's bad, he said. I asked her to allow the staff layoffs to occur and then to consider transitioning off the board in six months, he explained but she wants to leave now. I couldn't follow what he was saying and thought the 18-hour days were getting to him. I assumed he was talking about the long-term board transition plans, not something imminent. I told him I already knew that there would be a transition and that Michelle would step away. I hadn't been part of the specific discussions and didn't know the details, but the concept was not news to me. No, you don't understand, Craig said. I asked her to step off the board in August with the others, but she's resigning today. She's very upset. She'll tell you in the board meeting. What? I couldn't believe what I was hearing. You need to fix this, Craig. Let me talk to her and the others I suggested. It's too late, he said. I tried without success. To convince her to stay on for a six month transition period, then asked her for at least a three month period, and she said, It's a hard no. The idea that Michelle would be leaving on bad terms sounded like a horrible development, given her long service to the organization and our personal friendship, plus the We Charity Board and the organization more broadly always felt like family. Hugs were the norm at every meeting and event. Handshakes would have seemed stiff and formal. Michelle had been part of that family perhaps longer than anyone, and this felt like a sudden divorce that was going to turn acrimonious. But the board meeting was about to start, and there was no time to confer with anyone else, let alone speak to Michelle. I would just have to join the meeting and see how things unfolded. The first part of the video conference was an in-camera session closed to members of We Charity Management. This was a common practice for our board when we wanted to discuss significant organizational issues like the unfolding COVID-related layoffs. At first, the meeting seemed like any other. I started to think Craig was wrong and had misunderstood something Michelle had said, but then she took a deep breath and announced that she was leaving and had already submitted her resignation letter. She was visibly emotional, but she remained composed and professional as always. She had lost the confidence of the founders, she explained, and Craig had asked her to resign in a few months' time. Because she felt like she could no longer do her job, however, she said she had no choice but to resign immediately. She briefly explained the reasons. She said she had asked for real-time information supporting layoff decisions, but had not received the data she believed the board should have. For her, management's resistance to immediately providing what she'd requested was not acceptable. And that was it. She encouraged the board to, to continue to support the organization and the executive team, then stopped speaking. I scanned the solemn faces on the Microsoft team's call as people absorbed the news. Some, like me, had clearly had a bit of warning. Others appeared shocked. Board members began to pay tribute to Michelle. One by one, we thanked her for her service. One by one we expressed sadness that she was leaving under unhappy circumstances. I think people were especially careful with their words because many of us did not fully appreciate what had happened behind the scenes. Michelle's resignation letter was short on details. My resignation is linked entirely to the fact that I was asked by one of the organization's co-founders to leave the board of directors over a disagreement over governance process and very recent tensions between the board chairs and the co-founders, she wrote. Otherwise, I had not intended to resign, especially during this crisis. I take the request of Craig Kilberger to mean that the co-founders lost confidence in me as the chair of the board of directors of We Charity. I accept this, and I therefore resign." I am simply unable to stay on for one to three additional months under the circumstances that led to my resignation. Four days later, management provided the remaining directors with additional financial projections and a full list of employee layoffs, the things Michelle had been asking for all along. That day, the members of the board finance committee, Kanan and Chris Bess as well as the other members of the subcommittee addressing layoffs, White and Morrison, received a full financial update. On April 4th, the board met without management and received updates from the finance committee and layoff subcommittee members. Although there remained sadness at the circumstances around Michelle's departure and some questioned the way management had engaged with her, there was broad agreement that the actions taken by management were consistent with the financial picture and the organization's strategic interest. Other than Michelle, all board members remained in place at the time of this meeting. Like Michelle and the other directors, I had wanted to understand the rationale for the layoffs and make sure they were based on a realistic assessment of the organization's prospects. Sometimes, it is the job of a board to apply the brakes, and in my time with the charity, I never saw the directors fail to ask hard questions and push back when needed. In fact, I had personally been involved in situations where the board refused to proceed with initiatives that the co-founders and management team strongly supported. Having said that, I also think thorny issues arise when directors, particularly one with a conflict of interest, want to get involved in the details of employee terminations, at least where such decisions relate to non-executive positions the board is not responsible for appointing. Even now, with much water under the bridge, I cannot tell you why Michelle didn't come to the board as a whole, explain the impasse, and ask for some collective decision on what information was needed for management. We could have debated our role, and I may well have agreed with her in the end. Nor can I explain why Michelle, ordinarily a stickler for good process, did not raise the conflict of interest involving her sister and let the board decide whether she should be part of a subcommittee assessing layoffs. At the same time, I also cannot tell you why the Kilbergers and We Charity's executive leadership let things escalate, why they could not find a way to acquiesce, and why they thought it was reasonable to ask her to transition from the organization early without bringing the matter to the full board. All I can tell you is that cooler heads did not prevail. It was an abrupt and tragic end to Michelle's tenure with We Charity and one I regret. But today, as I see it, the important takeaway is that this occurred only at a particular moment in time, and it was only with respect to the narrow issue of whether layoffs were sufficiently justified and being handled appropriately, nothing more. Transition and Renewal Michelle did not quietly move on to bigger and better things. On June 28th, three months after she resigned, she responded on Twitter to someone who was defending We Charity's governing structure. This person had stated, incorrectly, that Michelle was the current Canadian board chair. She tweeted back, Michelle Douglas resigned from the board of directors of WE Charity on March 27, 2020. I am no longer associated with WE. Then, without providing any context, she added, almost all of the board of directors of WE Charity in Canada and the U.S. resigned or were replaced in March 2020. To most people, this might have seemed an innocent effort to set the record straight, but it twisted things. The insinuation was clear. Michelle was suggesting that there had been some sort of house cleaning at We Charity. As a board member who had not resigned or been replaced, I found this statement puzzling and more than a little insulting. It seemed to erase the continuing board members, a trio of highly capable professionals. Kanan, who today is the U.S. board chair, is a finance professional trained at some of the biggest firms in the world and had overseen the charity's financial governance for more than a decade. Jerry, who today serves as the co-chair of We Charity Foundation, had served on the board for almost a decade, and has a deep history in education and curriculum development. And I had served on the board for three years and have been litigating and investigating matters involving financial fraud for 20 years. Almost all, it seems, is in the eye of the beholder. Unfortunately, Michelle's tweets attracted attention. On July 2nd, The CBC posted a story titled, We Charity Saw Resignations, Departures from Senior Ranks Before Landing Government Contract. The piece linked to her tweets and said the charity had gone through a period of organizational upheaval over the previous few months. The chairs of both the Canadian and U.S. boards of directors for the We Charity resigned in the spring, the article reported. The vast majority of the other board members in the two countries have been replaced as well. The flurry of changes began about two months before the federal government announced WE was the only organization in Canada able to administer the multi-million dollar Canada Student Service Grant Initiative. The reasons for the resignations in Wee's upper ranks remain unclear. But there was nothing unclear about it. It is true that eight members of the board transitioned off in April 2020. What Michelle's tweets and the CBC piece both failed to note, however, was that this changing of the guard was part of a renewal process that had started a year earlier and was timed to meet the changing needs of the organization as it approached its 25th anniversary. Through this process, sitting board members exited to create space for other highly capable, independent professionals who would bring new energy and fresh ideas. On April 4th, the board voted to appoint new members, so did those scheduled to transition could depart. It simply happened earlier than planned. But to be clear, all the existing board members remained in place and voted on the transition, and there were no other protest departures. And for this book, I spoke to several other board members who transitioned off in the weeks and months after Michelle's departure. None felt they were forced out. Mary Eileen Donovan who served on the previous boards for nearly 13 years, said her transition was seamless. My term was basically up around the time we had our annual retreat meeting. And so I had already said that this is my last term. Chris Bess, similarly, confirmed that he had discussed making way for renewal for some time and had no negative feelings about transitioning off the board. In fact, he quickly reappeared at a subsequent board meeting to provide the new directors with an overview of the historical decision-making process around We Charity's real estate acquisitions. And Terry Mazzani told me that he felt no pressure and had no concerns about transitioning off the board. The restructuring of the board was done for strategic reasons in the best interest of We Charity so that the organization was well-positioned for growth. It made all the sense in the world, he said, and I wished I could stay, but I realized I was not the right person as the organization grew and evolved. These are not the words or actions of people who felt they were ousted or had been silenced from expressing concerns. The new chairs of the Canadian and U.S. boards jointly wrote an open letter explaining that the shakeup of the board was necessary to address renewal, sharpen the focus on future priorities, and address issues such as diversity, inclusion, and range of competencies, all while continuing to provide strong oversight and guidance to the organization. Unfortunately, this letter received very little media attention, and deriders like Kate Bayen, shot first, and skipped questions altogether. Did We Charity inform the government that its board had resigned or was replaced just weeks before she wondered aloud in a conversation with Jesse Brown at Canada Land, and that there was a gap in governance and oversight at the charity? Oh, and by the way, it has no board. This, of course, was not true. The organization always operated with a complete board that was composed of highly skilled people. Kanan later reflected on how all this became a confusing political football amid the CSSG controversy. Sadly, because all of the timing was sort of intermingled, an outsider looking in would think that somehow all of these things are related, when in reality the board restructuring was a conversation they had been having with us well before COVID and well before the CSSG. One important advantage of the board transition was that it allowed us to prioritize greater diversity. A diverse board is more effective at oversight because diversity fosters independence, critical thinking, varied perspectives, and different opinions. Before April, 2020, we charities' Canadian and U.S. boards had seven men and five women, with no women of color and only two men of color, Canaan and me. After the transition, the board consisted of five women and four men, half of whom were people of color. And the new U.S. board chair was a prominent black female educator, Dr. Jacqueline Sanderlin. So the process of renewal brought a marked improvement in diversity, something those of us on the newly constituted board were very proud of. Of course, none of this stopped politicians and journalists from advancing the narrative that the board of directors was in disarray. In fact, this was a seed that had already been planted by Michelle prior to her July 28th appearance at FINA. FINA. On the eve of her testimony, The Globe and Mail ran a front-page story that featured comments from Michelle about her departure. Former WE Charity chair says she resigned over concerning developments at the organization. Read the headline. She was quoted as saying, My resignation as the chair of the board of directors of WE Charity was a result of concerning developments. I did not resign in the ordinary course of matters. Those two sentences were her only quotes in the thousand-word article, but it was enough to set the tone for her testimony and everything that followed. Taking Center Stage Douglas's FINA appearance began with MPs paying tribute to their star witness. The committee chair, Prince Edward Islander Wayne Easter, lauded her accomplishments. I know I speak for the committee when I say thank you for your service to the country through the military, your service as a public servant with the Department of Justice, and your human rights activism, which has been responsible for changing some of the social policy in Canada. Thank you for that. Conservative Pierre Polyev followed suit but focused only on her time in the military and did not mention LGBTQ rights. In his opening question, Charlie Angus said that he was very concerned about what was happening with the board and implied that the organization was lacking in governance and oversight. Michelle effectively confirmed this when she replied... We were pushing for information, just simply the information that we were told regularly was being generated on a daily basis. That information was never provided, although we asked. The only reason I'm asking to get into this, Angus declared, as if his own questions were beyond his control, is that the Canadian people have given this organization close to a billion dollars. And we need to know that this is an organization that has proper structure, that it's not just the Killberger brothers and their family, but that there is oversight. Michelle could have pushed back on Angus's deliberate inflation of the dollar value of the CSSG and his implication that all the money was going into Wee's coffers, but she stayed silent. It was left to the committee chair to correct the record at the end of Angus's round of questions. Conservative MP Michael Cooper also made several false statements during his questioning, including that there was an upheaval in the organization in March and that the other board members had resigned, either in solidarity with Michelle or because they were being blocked from performing their own oversight duties. Again, she let most of these claims stand and even validated some by saying that the pre-planned board transition did not happen in the ordinary course and that she had been denied access to the chief financial officer. The CFO said that Michelle had his email and phone number but never reached out. Some MPs did try to push back on the misinformation being read into the record. For instance, Quebec MP Annie Koutrakas asked Michelle how much say she as chair of the board had in the overall governance and strategic direction of the organization and had her acknowledge that the board had power to make decisions around governance, establish a direction of oversight, and review financial records. Michelle also signed off on all financial audits. And the final questioner, Ontario MP Peter Fragascaros asked her point blank if during her 15 years with the organization she had ever found or seen any irregularities, financial or otherwise, that were of concern. She responded, I never saw anything about the integrity of the organization that caused me deep concern. He then brought the questioning back to the supposed purpose of the hearing when he mentioned the comments Michelle had made to the Globe and Mail about alleged concerning developments at the charity. These developments had nothing to do with the Canada Student Service Grant, Fragascato said, and nothing to do with the contribution agreement that we eventually signed with the federal government. Is that correct? She agreed it was. In fact, Michelle was crystal clear in saying that her resignation was prompted by her view that employees were being laid off and the board did not have enough information to provide oversight. For opposition politicians, with an agenda, Douglas's testimony was pure gold. Angus later translated it this way, Our committee found out that the board of directors was fired in the middle of the pandemic for asking for financial statements. Conservative MP Michael Barrett, meanwhile, declaimed, with a deal that's this big, how was it missed that there were breached bank covenants and a board responsible for the organization in shambles, in a word, and there were all kinds of real estate transactions that are now in the public domain that are questionable at best for an organization of this type. How could, in that due diligence, something like that be missed? In the end, here is what I think you can reasonably take away from Michelle's testimony and public statements. She had no knowledge whatsoever of the CSSG and whatever issues she may have had with the way the charity was being managed they had nothing to do with the grant program. She left the organization earlier than planned because she was unhappy with the level of information being supplied to the board with respect to pandemic-related layoffs and the way in which she was treated by the Kilburgers. Reasonable people can disagree over whether she was right or wrong in what she was demanding of management and in her decision to resign immediately when her demands were not met. And it is fair to question whether we Charities Management and the co-founders handled the situation well. But let's also be clear about what Michelle did not say and what cannot be reasonably taken away. She didn't suggest that there was a broader governance problem at We Charity during the decade in which she was responsible for governance. In fact, she said the opposite in her testimony in numerous written statements and throughout her long tenure at the helm. She did not say that she did a bad job or had for some reason been keeping quiet about serious problems for years. Nor did she say that governance was lacking after she left, or that she had any basis to question the wisdom of the charity's decision to administer the CSSG. She noted that a lot of directors also transitioned off the board after she left, which is a fact. But that does not mean that other directors were pushed out or left under dubious circumstances. And it does not mean that those of us who remained in place failed to mind the shop, or that newly appointed directors, all people of exemplary character and experience, were not up to the task. Had the media been interested in reporting her testimony fairly and accurately, that is the story they would have told. Michelle's experience and views make for an interesting and perhaps even healthy debate on governance. Instead, the press used her remarks to shore up the narrative they had been advancing for months. One Bloomberg headline read, We Charity Hearings reveal Troubling Governance Structure. McLean's magazine allowed someone it identified as a charity consultant to pronounce, Their governance structure makes no sense and is unaccountable, which we hear from the testimony of the chair. Their incorporation structure is Byzantine, at best, and unaccountable, and needs to change. Meanwhile, National Post columnist Chris Shelley cherry-picked Michelle's words to make them fit the version of events he wanted to sell to readers. We don't know a lot more of substance about the Kilberger affair after the House of Commons Finance Committee's Tuesday meeting. But we do have more details. And the details are what makes this story kind of fun as well as gross, he began. Then he asserted that Douglas said her board was frustrated in its efforts to gain any insight into the financial condition of the organization, her fruitless inquiries culminated in a meeting where Brother Mark simply hung up the phone, she testified, after which she was asked to resign. And yet, contrary to what certain MPs would have people believe, the board did receive financials. I know because I was one of the directors who received them. And the subcommittee charged with liaising with management, also received financial information while layoffs were proceeding, just not in a form and at the depth desired by Michelle. But even had Shelley's assertion been true, it was an irresponsible leap for the media to go from the board chair's complaint about documentation involving the single matter of pandemic layoffs to the claim that the board had no insight into the charity's financial condition. It also frustrates me that journalists and politicians deliberately inflated Michelle's concerns to create a myth of widespread disorder. She herself never went that far, as we saw in her response to Peter Fragascados. She also told another MP that the layoffs were not triggered by financial distress, poking a hole in the popular theory that we charity needed a government bailout. These comments should have been the end of the partisan attacks. The supposed whistleblower, she said, had no concerns about the integrity of the organization or its finances. But in these parliamentary hearings, it was not the answers that mattered only the questions. MPs wanted to get themselves on the evening news, so they offered up the most sensationalist statements from soundbites. This served no one's interest, least of all that of the Canadian public. At the same time, the voices of other board members were silenced. People have often asked me, why other directors didn't speak up on behalf of the charity. In fact, they did, but the media didn't allow them to be heard. Multiple board members released statements to the press, including the open letter from the two new chairs that I mentioned earlier. Board members also submitted letters to the editors of The Globe and Mail, The National Post, The Ottawa Citizen, The Montreal Gazette, and the Vancouver Sun all were rejected. It seemed the media narrative had been decided and no one was interested in hearing from dissenting voices. It's also worth noting that the charity's directors, including me, were not simply focused on defending the charity during the scandal. We were also busy discharging our governance obligations by asking hard questions of we management in response to every allegation that surfaced. We had a duty to carefully assess whether there was merit to the headlines and political attacks. If the charity had done something wrong, we had no intention of just standing idly by. I certainly would have demanded action or resign, but aside from the commentary, I offer in this book about what could have been done better, I never learned anything that caused me to question the good faith and integrity of the charity's co-founders or leadership team. Since the day Michelle testified in July 2020, I have heard from dozens of people that her commentary was what stuck with them most. But many of those people did not see or read her testimony in full. Their understanding of what she said is based entirely on TV soundbites and social media posts by politicians. That coverage caused many to doubt the charity and convinced some corporate sponsors to withdraw their support. In fact, the charity's largest U.S. sponsor, Walgreens, told Craig that news coverage of Michelle's testimony was the reason it decided to stop partnering with the organization on a multi-million dollar initiative to help low-income students with free programs and deliver global health programs at Baraka Hospital in Kenya. With Michelle's testimony complete, it was Mark and Craig's turn in the hot seat just eight minutes later. Post Media columnist Alicia Corbella later summed up her impact. The Killberger's testimony might have been convincing and sympathetic had it not been preceded by Douglas. Thank you for listening. You can download more episodes of What We Lost wherever you get your podcast. To learn more about Tafik Rangwala's national bestseller or to buy the book, Visit whatwelost.com and discover the real story behind the CSSG controversy.